Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think sometimes we choose pain in and of itself. Sometimes we choose a meaningful pursuit. And we don't really want the pain, but we understand that the pain and the suffering is part and parcel of what makes it meaningful. You're listening to Paul Bloom on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. This is Diana, and if you're a healthcare worker or a mental health therapist, you may find that some of your clients are caught in a tug-of-war with food and weight. They battle their body image and eating and are entangled in preoccupation about weight or feeling stuck in cycles of rigid dieting, overeating, shame, or hopelessness. I'm going to be offering a live online webinar with PESI Continuing Education on using ACT for eating and body image concerns, and then I hope you'll join me on Friday, December 3rd, 2021 from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can learn more through my events page at drdianahill.com. Hope to see you there. I am here with Katie Rothfelder, who is our dissemination coordinator. And we thought we'd bring her on because we talk a lot about Praxis, how Praxis sponsors this podcast. They offer online continuing education for professionals, everything from DBT to ACT training to compassion-focused therapy. And Katie's had some personal experience with Praxis that I think would be helpful for you to all learn about. Yeah, Diana, I started out with Stephen Hayes Act Immersion Program, and that was really my first chance to get, you know, really into ACT. And then since then, I've had these kind of on-demand course opportunities. Um, The one that really sticks out to me is Lou Lasbugato's Feedback Enhanced ACT course, which was this really beautiful mix of instruction for really difficult ACT concepts and then in-depth learning with practice. That grew my muscles as a, a brand new clinician so much. So if you are interested in taking a Praxis course, go ahead and go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and we have a discount code for you for some of the live courses. Check them out, Praxis Continuing Education. This is Diana, and there are so many paradoxes in psychology. Things like the harder you try to fall asleep, the less likely you will. The more you try and not think negative thoughts, the more likely they're going to pop into your head. And according to Paul Bloom, 
struggle and pain may just be the source of pleasure and meaning in our lives. So I'm going to be talking to Paul Bloom today all about the pursuit of pain and how it's related to pleasure, how it's related to meaning, and some surprising aspects of human nature as well, like why empathy isn't always a good thing. I have been reflecting about my own relationship with pursuing pain, and I want to talk with you all about it because we were in grad school together. We were fellow (laughs) running partners, so we both have experienced pain. And I think in some ways, I am a bit of a benign masochist. It really helped me reading his book to understand why I like to do things that are hard. And I'm curious for you, Yael, what are some of the things that you do that are maybe painful that bring you a little bit of pleasure? Well, so many things, because <laughs> I think that ambition, it's like, so I am admittedly an ambitious person. Like I want big things and pursuing big goals is hard because it means that you're confronting areas that, um, you know, other people are going to be in that space trying to pursue and compete. And so you're not always going to be the best. And if I, if you have big goals, it means that you have to try hard and take risks. But I can actually think back to a conversation. I mean, when you say grad school, I'm just thinking back to a conversation that I had with my now husband. He was then my boyfriend. And I remember saying, you know, therapy feels like it kind of comes more easily to me, but research is really hard, but I just find it much more gratifying. And he said, I think it's because it's hard that you find it gratifying but wouldn't it be better to just do the thing that's easier? And I said, no, I think I like doing the things that are harder because the rewards are just much sweeter. And I think that's a lot of what Paul Bloom talks about. Absolutely. I think he talks about just sort of also the contrast of doing something really hard, how it actually allows us to experience pleasure because there's that relief that comes when you're done, you know, something like working really hard on a project and then being able to relax after. But also this aspect of, you know, for me, I'd always, whenever I go into massage, I'm always like, give me the painful massage. Like in some way, the Swedish massage doesn't quite do it for me. I need it to be somewhat painful to feel like it's doing its job. And there is something about that in our human nature where experiencing pain has some degree of achievement associated with it. There's also an element of just being curious about our capacities. I know that for you, Yael, in terms of research, there's always been this sort of edge that you can keep on pursuing and growing in, and that is satisfying for us. So it's really interesting to talk to Dr. Bloom about some of the experimental research behind pain, how it's related to pleasure, and I hope you find this episode as interesting as I did. Here we are with Paul Bloom. He is a professor of psychology at University of Toronto and the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale University. And his research explores the psychology of morality, identity, and pleasure. Bloom is the recipient of multiple awards and honors, including most recently the million dollar Klaus L. Jacobs Research Prize. And he's written for scientific journals such as Nature and Science, for the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic Monthly. And he's the author and editor of eight books, including Just Babies, How Pleasure Works, Descartes' Baby, Against Empathy, and most recently, The Sweet Spot. So today, I hope that we can talk about The Sweet Spot, because it is really relevant for folks that uh, in particular follow this podcast and have been interested in acceptance commitment therapy, because you're talking about uh, sort of the value of choosing pain. And it feels a little bit... um, sort of unusual for someone to research this, the value of choosing pain. But I'm curious why you named it the sweet spot and what you're talking about in terms of choosing pain. Yeah, well, thanks for having me here. This is a this is a great experience for me. I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm 
an experimental psychologist. So I'm really grateful to get a chance to get a different perspective on this work. Um, my book is about chosen suffering, why we sometimes choose to uh, experience pain or anxiety or stress. And um, I argue that we do it in part because it gives us pleasure, but in part because it has a sort of a separate value all to itself. Um, it's part of a search for meaning, for purpose in life. Most activities that are worthwhile will involve some degree of suffering. And um, the title, The Sweet Spot, is basically an acknowledgement that we're looking at many different things if we want to live a full life. And one of them is pleasure. I don't deny we seek out pleasure and good times. But another is meaning and purpose. And I think it's up to each one of us to kind of figure out what the right space between these is, how to balance them properly. So hence uh, the sweet spot. You kind of break it down into two components in the book. The first part really being about just sort of the enjoyment of benign masochism. And you say things like, you know, why is it that we want to do hot yoga or do things that are just sort of painful, but they kind of feel good because they're painful. And then the second part is about meaning. So I'd like to actually start with the first part, which is why is it that we enjoy pain? And one of the questions that you ask early on in the book is for readers to think about something that they do that's painful that's enjoyable. And I wanted to pose that to you. What What is it that you do that's painful, but that also kind of feels good? And then maybe the second part of that question is, why does it feel good? Such a good question. Um, I, I, I have an easy answer to this, which is um, I joined a gym a few months ago, um, a couple blocks from my house. And, and what we do there is for about 50 minutes, we lift weights. And, uh, you know, we're doing, you know, curls and, and, and you know, uh, kettlebell swings and all of this stuff. I'm not in the best shape and it kills me. It kills me. And, and I'm a constant clock watcher when I'm there. 38 minutes to go, 11 minutes to go. It's awful. It's, it's physically painful. It's difficult. It's stressful. And I love it. It's also the high point in my day. And I think what's going on here is a few things. Um, one thing is the contrast, which is it feels so good when I stop. But I think more substantively, there's a feeling of mastery. Of satisfaction myself, I'm doing something good. I'm making some progress, and um, and if it was easy, if if I went in there and I don't know, they hooked up electrodes to my muscles and they ate Kit Kat bars and watched YouTube videos, I don't think it would carry the same satisfaction. I think the difficulty is part and parcel of the reason why I feel so fondly towards this activity and such an important part of my life. So exercise is a good example, but I also want it more of like an example of something that's just. So for example, my child, I was having him floss his teeth the other night and he came out and he had wrapped the floss completely around his finger. We've all tried this as a kid, like yeah. wrapped it to the point that your finger starts to turn blue and then kind of white. And then he showed it to me. <laughs> and as a parent, I'm like, why'd you do that? And and you actually asked that question in the book, like, why why would you do that? Why would you wrap a piece of floss around your finger to the point that it turns blue? And there's some maybe potentially social signaling or evolutionary reasons that don't have to do with the, you know, sort of the, the greater virtue of exercise, but just have to do with the pure pleasure of pain. No, fair enough. I think we often like pain almost, it seems like for its own sake, um, the, 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 the dental floss around fingers is a perfect example. Another example is you have a sore tooth and you poke it with your tongue. You have a sprained ankle, you press on it a bit. Um, you, um, you know, people put their hands over flames and, and I think everybody does it. It could be taken to pathological extremes when you damage your body, but everybody does it. And 
there's a few stories as to why. One account is it's social signaling. It's designed to tell people around you something. And often, for instance, when, uh, when adolescents cut themselves, this is part of what it is. It's a cry for help. Um, in other instances, it could be a signal of, look how tough I am. You know, you, you do sometimes these things in public. I, you know, I'd get into wasabi eating competitions with my teenage son. And, you know, so, so you mean, this is like, we're just trying to show off to each other. But I think something else, and maybe something which connects um, a lot to sort of clinical issues and also issues of just um, everyday life is sometimes pain could serve as an escape from the self. And that sounds like a really weird way of putting in kind of mystical and, but self-consciousness could be a burden. You're, you're, you know, just like you get sick of somebody else, you get sick of yourself, you get sick of, of your ruminations of the past, that old voice in your head, thinking about the future. And pain could jolt you out of it. It captures your attention. There's a certain clarity to it. And I think we could find it refreshing and invigorating in the right context under the right sort of control. It makes me think about, I worked in the field of eating disorders for a long time. And if you think about something like um, anorexia, that folks that starve themselves, I mean, I, I would have clients that would, you know, run miles on 300 calories a day. And certainly this is the pathological aspect of pain. But oftentimes what they would report is this sense of numbing, like that the, the pain actually numbs you from other stuff. And then also, like you're saying, it, it, it kind of turns down the volume of self. If you have a really loud self-critic and then you can purposely choose to go run for two and a half hours, there's a self-punishment aspect of it, but there's also an escape. And in act, we call that like sort of experiential avoidance, right? So you're like avoiding the discomfort with, the, with this other type of discomfort. So that seems like that plays a role. I think so. I, I, I quote a dominatrix saying that when someone holds up a whip, that's all you could think about. It takes up your whole mind and, and the pain itself really does. Um, sometimes if people are upset, they'll, they'll, you know, hit a wall or something. And the jolt of pain that they experience in some way clears the mind. And you're, you're certainly right. Uh, this could be taken to extremes, to really unhealthy extremes. But, but I think in the normal range, and I even am including even in this BDSM, which doesn't seem to be linked with any psychological disorder. In a normal range, it could be fine and healthy. So BDSM is an interesting topic, right? Because it actually gives you a sense of control because there's something about BDSM that has to do with choice. And there's consent, there's control, there's choice. And that seems like it's a real foundation of some of what we're talking about in terms of chosen pain is different than unchosen pain. Can you talk a bit about that? I think that's an absolutely important insight, which cuts across everything I want to talk about, which is I'm in favor of chosen suffering of the right source. I think it's part of a healthy mind. I think it, it, it improves people's lives. Unchosen suffering is typically just sucks. It's, it's just it's just bad for you and you should try to avoid it, which is no surprise to anybody. Um, but there's a world of difference between choosing to cause yourself some pain or even some indignity or humiliation or something like that and having it under your control um, versus it being imposed from somebody else. The first could be pleasurable and healthy and interesting. The second is just, is just horrible. Um, C.S. Lewis, you know, the great writer and theologian, makes a point regarding deprivation of food. So he says, you know, sometimes fasting in the context of religion, in the context of an exercise, in the right amount could be feeling like, look at, look at, look at my autonomy, look what I'm doing, look at my control. But to have someone else deprive you of food is just terrible. You're just a victim of, of, of a crime or to run out of food because you're, 
you can't afford it. So yeah, control is totally important. And I think in some cases, control is where the suffering derives its satisfaction, gives you pleasure. And I don't know if you're actually controlling the the pain itself. It's you're you're c- controlling the choice. I mean, that's kind of an important distinction there. Like that you that you are willingly entering into pain, and that is really some of the foundation of of clinical work. So when you're working with someone around exposure to anxiety, we, I'm actually having folks come into my office and approach the the thing that they fear most, and they're choosing it as opposed to it being chosen for them, which is a real, it just is such an important distinction. One of the areas where people choose pain is pursuing goals, mastery, achievement. You talk a bit about the difference between happiness, that sort of the eudonomic happiness versus the hedonic happiness. I'm curious if you can speak to that in terms of choosing pain and and the role that that has to do in actually making things potentially more meaningful. Yeah, um, I think we choose pain in different ways and, and it kind of uh, respects the division that you're making. So sometimes for pleasure, we will just directly choose choose pain. Um, I gave a talk based on, on my book as I was writing it and um, some graduate student in Mexico uh, emailed me and said, you know, we have these things in clubs and restaurants, which are electric shock machines. And you put it on and you see how high a shock you could take. And you do it with your friends, you do it with your family, and it's a riot. It's a lot of fun. And, and I think that's where you're just choosing pain. But then the other thing is we often choose meaningful life pursuits. And here it gets a bit complicated because if when I decide to have a child or take on a new job or open up a business or whatever, I don't want to fail. I don't want pain and suffering. I want it to succeed. But if there wasn't the possibility of failure and there wasn't pain and suffering and difficulty, it would be meaningless. So I think sometimes we choose pain in and of itself. Sometimes we choose a meaningful pursuit and we don't really want the pain, but we understand that the pain and the suffering is part and parcel of what makes it meaningful. If there's pain associated with something like your graduate degree, you know, you, you get a degree from somewhere that's a little bit more prestigious or it has a little bit more um, effort associated with it, is it, do you actually value it more because of the pain? It kind of, it, it's, People use the term pleasure in different ways. The way I think of pleasure is in a more sort of visceral way. And I think um, spicy foods and BDSM give you pleasure. I don't think graduate school <laughs> gives you pleasure. I think, I, you know, I, I remember my graduate school. It, it wasn't fun in any simple way. I think pleasure wouldn't be the right term, but it was satisfying. I felt a feeling of accomplishment. I'm glad I did it. And so I think some sort of suffering we choose for pleasure in a real basic sense. It's just fun. But other sorts we choose for other reasons that don't give us pleasure, but give us something else. In terms of, again, this distinction between ha- like what, what is happiness and what is a well-lived life and your thesis is this idea around that we can have many different reasons that contribute to a happy life. Part of that is the hedonism and pleasure and part of that is meaning. When we look at things like the World Happiness Report that recently came out, they're starting to introduce some ideas of that it's not just about money and um, social connection, but it's also about things like trust and benevolence. I mean, you're raising a lot of interesting things here. If you ask people, how happy are you and how meaningful your life is, they treat this as two different questions. And the World Happiness Report is a wonderful example of this. So one of the core findings is, you know, you have these, the, the happy, the richer the country, the happier, the more social trust, the happier, the more um, and, and in some ways, the countries which are happier seem, you know, 
Australia, New Zealand, Norway, to countries that are sort of, people live comfortable and fairly prosperous lives. Um, and then you asked, there's, but there was other studies where you asked people how meaningful your life is. And there, what's fascinating is the results flip. The richer the country, the less meaning. The countries which people say they have the most meaningful life are poor and difficult to live with, They're difficult to live in and have a lot of struggles. And there's all sorts of questions as to why, but it seems to capture that these are two different things. Um, the idea of the social utility of pain, I think pain can bring people together. Uh, there's some experimental work by Brock Bastian, which is he gets people in the lab and has them have them experience mild pain together, sort of pain psychologists give people in a lab. And then they find they like each other more. They're more connected. And um, a lot of people, scholars of religion have argued that very painful religious rituals serve a bonding function among members of that religion. Yeah, sort of that social signaling, again, of, of we're kind of in this together, we're sacrificing together for something. But circling back to the countries that have lower income tend to also be related to uh, greater meaning. It also seems like that p- could potentially map on to work as well, that some of the most meaningful work that people do is also the, the least paid. You know, things like social work, or as you mentioned, you know, the clergy scores pretty highly on, on sense of meaning as well. Yeah, I think I think there, there was a study of, I think, 2 million people asking about what jobs they have and how meaningful they find them. And the punchline is exactly what you're saying, which is... Um, the most meaningful jobs are things like uh, clergy, educators, um, social workers, and military. And these are not hugely well-paying jobs. They may not be the highest status jobs. And they're difficult jobs. They involve dealing with people in trouble and, and, and stress and struggle. And people say, this is what gives them meaning. Um, you can get a high-paying job, which does give you meaning, a surgeon is high up on the list that pays well is high prestige and a lot of meaning, but, but it, it also involves dealing with people and, and dealing with people's problems. The job with the least meaning of any job that was on a scale is a parking lot attendant. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got to aspire to, to, yeah. Yeah. Being outsourced anyways, as you, yes, as we yes. automate everything. That's right. But it also makes me think about just, you know, during COVID and the and the pandemic and and the cha- people changing their jobs and quitting their jobs, like this mass exodus of of jobs, and it seems like some of the ones that folks are quitting tend to be the ones that have lower meaning. And there also may be some degree of you're not getting the ple- the happy, pleasurable aspects of your job anymore, like being able to meet your friends and hang out at you know lunch and do those types of things that maybe made something like being a grocery clerk more enjoyable. Uh, so there is there some kind of like race, like perfect ratio that we're trying to achieve there, you know, because we want some joy in our work. It just can't all be meaningful. No, that's right. Yeah. I think this brings us back to the title, which is, I think, I think we can get both. And if you ask people how meaningful their life is and how happy they are, the answers actually correlate. So it's not like you, certainly there's a lot of people who have one and not the other, but you can have both. There are people walking around whose lives are both meaningful and happy. And uh, I think employment is a good case where you could live it out. There's, there's kind of a Zen idea that, um, any job could give you meaning and purpose and satisfaction if you're sort of situated right. But the reality of it is that some jobs lend themselves to that. I mean, your job lends itself to that. Treating people is the sort of thing. It's, it's easy to find it meaningful. You see a purpose. You see consequences and goals. You're making a difference. And if you have that kind of job, you're probably better sticking to it 
you know, unless you could find something else. But a lot of people have awful jobs that provide them with no meaning and, uh, and very little pleasure. And you could really see that those people might be better off if they could retire or do something else doing exactly that. And the pandemic has, as I think, reminded a lot of people of that. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about um, substitute teachers. So that's one area where there's just been a mass exodus. And I know this because my uh, partner, he he teaches teachers. He has he's, he's a credentialed teacher, but he went on to get his PhD and, you know, teaches teachers. And they called him, he hasn't taught in 20 years, but they started calling him into the classroom. Just a few weeks ago, he taught first grade, third grade, and high school math. And uh, because there's no substitute teachers to be had. And if you think about okay, that would be traditionally a very meaningful job. You're getting paid really low, but if, if you really care about kids or you enjoy this work, but during these times, things are uh, more stressful and maybe either the, the lack of pleasure associated with them or even just the questioning, is it worth it? Which I think a lot of people yeah. are doing. For the last year and a half, I've been teaching classes over Zoom. And for the first time this semester, I'm teaching a seminar in person at University of Toronto. And at the beginning, I sat at these 20 people and I said, look, we're going to see how this goes, but we all had masks on. The mask might be uncomfortable. Um, if we don't like this, we could just go to Zoom. And by the end of the class, I'm saying, we're never going to go to Zoom. It is so nice to be in people's actual physical presence. I would have never known it made such a difference. And you're right. I think a lot of the, the, the circumstances of the pandemic, both changing the nature of your job and also, like you said, changing the social connections you normally get from it, has made people miserable, has taken good jobs and, you know, meaningful, happy, and, and taken away a lot of their value. And I hopefully when this ends, you know, we'll get people who have the good jobs can get some of those benefits back. So how can you, if you're in the situation that you're in, maybe you're not in a job that you're finding a lot of meaning, but you need to be there financially, or, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of control over that. How can you bring some of these ideas from um, the sweet spot to maybe shift your perspective or shift your experience of, of your, you know, maybe meaningless um, job or situation? Yeah, that's, that's a toughie. I, I don't, I, I have two general avenues I'd suggest, but I don't have any concrete advice. One avenue is maybe this is more difficult, but you could try to find meaning in your job. There's a story, um, it's probably not true, but there's a story of uh, John F. Kennedy visiting uh, NASA. And he talks to a janitor and he asks the janitor, so what do you do here? And the janitor says, I help put men on the moon. And, you know, you see your job that way. You see, you know, even a job which, is, which may, others might view as menial, you could find or find purpose, establish goals. Um, and then the alternative is sometimes your job isn't going to be meaningful and you should try to find meaning in other avenues of life. I have... A friend of mine who works in a bank and he finds it fairly dull and not very meaningful. He has friends there. And then he does, you know, competitive athletics for every other moment of his life when he's not at work. And he finds that very meaningful. So another thing that I've thought about in your work is sort of this progression of um, books that you've written. So you started out writing about pleasure and then you and then you wrote a bit about empathy and now now we're at meaning. And I want to pause on the empathy one because uh, your book is titled Against Empathy. And I think it's that title is a little bit of a, you know, in, in marketing when they say like, when everyone else is zigging, you should zag. <laughs> so it has a little bit of that, like it'll capture people's attention. You're not 100% against empathy. I mean, you're an empathic guy. But I'd love to talk about empathy and how it kind of relates to pleasure and relates 
to pain. Sure. I mean, my friends have made fun of me that I wrote my last two books could be called Against Empathy and in Favor of Suffering. And uh, I, um, I think uh, I'm not, I'm not against empathy in two senses. First thing, some people use their empathy very broadly to mean kindness and compassion and love. I'm not against that. That's horrible. And in fact, the subtitle of my book, just to make it very clear, the people who just read the cover is uh, The Case for Rational Compassion. And I'm also not against empathy in the sense of that I'm interested in putting yourself in another person's shoes, feeling what they feel. In general, it's actually, for instance, it's a great source of pleasure. And, you know, one of the joys of having a kid, for instance, is to be able to take things you've experienced a thousand times before, like fireworks or a hot fudge Sunday or a Hitchcock movie, and experience them anew each time. One of the joys of fiction, movies, TV, uh, books, is, is, is empathic connection to fictional characters. So empathy could be a great source of pleasure. The argument I make in my book is that it's an unreliable moral guide, that if you let your empathy guide you to do the right thing, It'll guide you to help people who look like you, who are close to you, who are friends with you, who are non-threatening. And our empathic uh, preferences are very tied to sort of racial preferences and sexist preferences. And to be really good people, often we have to say, well, empathy's pulling me this way, but I should step back and, and you know, use my rationality and my caring to act. There's been a couple of times where empathy has come up on guests that I've interviewed and one of them being Stephen Porges, who talks about he really warned against empathy as well in terms of his concern was if you are overly empathic, you start to activate areas in your brain that are associated with with pain. And it would sort of be like if you're empathic with someone that's grieving, all of a sudden you start grieving so much the other person has to take care of you, right? That there's a, there's a little bit of a distance or perspective that's needed in order to be compassionate. Uh, and then the other part of it, when you when you use the word compassion, I think that you need to have some degree of empathy to be compassionate. You need to be able to understand someone and, and empathize emotionally and maybe cognitively with their pain, but not be consumed by it. And certainly as a therapist, that's you're kind of always walking that. I think that's line. right. And my empathy book is a long chapter on, on therapy and 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 looking at exactly these issues. And you're right. You need, as a therapist, what we call cognitive empathy. You have to understand what's going on. And you may have had to experience it at some point. You know, if I'm, if I'm seeing somebody because I'm very lonely, it would be odd for me to get help from somebody who had never experienced loneliness. They just couldn't understand it. But I really agree with the first point that, that, that you made, which is that, you know, if I'm seeing my therapist and I'm very anxious and upset and I'm crying and I'm overwhelmed, I don't want her to start crying and get anxious and upset, you know? Then I have, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, we have two problems and not one. I want, you know, I want her to give me the name of therapist look and say, so how does that make you feel? I mean, I want to, you know, I want her to understand what's going on with me, to care about me, or to want to make me better. And, and, but, but if I'm anxious, the response I want is calmness. If I'm miserable, I don't want misery jumping back at me. And putting aside what the client wants, there's a therapist, him or herself, which is, you know, a lot of therapists will burn out very quickly if, um, if, if they feel too empathic. And same with other professions like, uh, like, you know, EMTs or, you know, pediatric doctors. And, you know, if you feel the pain of other people too intensely, your job becomes a misery. Yeah. Instead of compassion fatigue, it really should be termed empathy fatigue. I think that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting because I think sometimes as a therapist, it's more like a dial that you need to be able to turn. So sometimes I need to turn up my empathy because I'm not relating with the client enough. Uh, I had a client that had a phobia of fruits and vegetables. This is many, many years ago. And I personally am a lover of the fruit and vegetable category. And so I had to get into the space of how much this is impacting her life. And I would think that sometimes empathy, we only empathize with people that are similar than us, but sometimes we need to dial up our empathy with people that are different than us. And that's sort of, you know, I think some of the work around morality and um, compassion that you talk about as well. I think that's right. And I think it's, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, and it's a challenge somebody who does what you do faces, which is how do you deal with people who are really have concerns and problems that are just sort of alien to you? And I imagine part of the way you do it is you're certainly not afraid of fruits and vegetables, but you are afraid of other things. Everybody's afraid of something. And you can say, well, if, if the way I feel towards rats or, or tight spaces or whatever, imagine I felt that way. And that could help you make that sort of empathic connection. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, the opposite can happen as your therapist, you don't go into the uncomfortable spaces because you have too much empathy. You know, maybe you've had your own history of a family member with suicide, so you don't ask questions about suicide, or you have your own anxiety about, uh, you know, whatever, the pandemic, so you don't talk about anxiety around the pandemic. So it can kind of go both ways of how to navigate that. That's right. And I think so much of your profession is, of the training of your profession, is adopting the proper sort of distance but but empathic and a cognitive empathy sense towards your clients. And also, I think the field weeds out people who feel too much. Um, they, um, they either burn out or they're just not a, that effective at what they do. You know, if you, can't, if you can't talk to a client about depression because it just makes you too sad, you're not going to be able to work with depressed people. And it comes back to choice again. Because I think with a with a therapist, you're choosing to move into uncomfortable places for a reason that you have to have, especially if you're an evidence based therapist, that you're you're thinking about the functionality of that choice. Like I'm I'm choosing to talk about um, you know, like with kids, I'm choosing to talk about racism with my kids, which is uncomfortable as a white person. This is an uncomfortable conversation, but there's a meaning or purpose behind it, and I think that that is really at the crux of some of choice around pain is if it's connected to our values or connected to something bigger, then then we may be more willing to do it. I think that's right. And I think a lot of what we talked about, we talked about meaningful jobs and how meaningful jobs require suffering. And if you look at the most meaningful jobs, um, probably the majority are people in some sort of a therapeutic or medical perspective where they deal with people who are in trouble, who are in physical trouble or psychological trouble. And if you're a normal person with normal empathy, that's just difficult. But the difficulty can become meaningful and not pleasurable, really, in a simple sense, but meaningful because you know you're doing it to help people and you believe you can help people. So there's a third dimension of well-being that's being talked about in the literature. And I wanted to ask you about this, what your thoughts are on this. So there's the sort of happiness, pleasure, meaning, purpose. And this third dimension is being described as psychological richness, which has to do with curiosity, perspective change, um, sort of the uh, having dramatic life experiences that kind of shift how you see the world. And although it's related statistically to the other two, it does seem to be sort of a third separate factor that's different 
than the other two. And I'm, I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that, because it also seems that things that are uncomfortable would also be some of the things that are, or that are painful would be some of the things that are also um, interesting to us. I think that's right. Um, this, I, I think you're referencing a seminal paper, which came out like a couple of months ago, um, mm-hmm. that explored this psychological richness dimension. And I wish it came out in time for me to discuss it because it, it really connects in an interesting way. So in my book, I talk about seeking pleasure. I talk about meaning. I talk a bit about morality, how we want to be good. Um, but you're right. We also want variety. And, and there's a sense in which uh, that's another component of human motivation, wanting variety, wanting interesting lives. And I think, again, suffering and difficulty and anxiety is part of it. If, if, you know, if when I travel, I never feel self-doubt, I'm never worried about embarrassing myself, I'm never worried about some sort of physical or social danger, I'm probably not traveling to very interesting places. And um, now, again, there's this balance, um, this, you know, sweet spot thing, which is if, if you go, if you want to titrate your risk appropriately, um, not everybody is going to go, you know, into the jungle for, for six months naked to, you know, see how that works out. Uh, but, but you should get some, some anxiety and stress. And that's a clue. Not only you're having, you're having a life of purpose, but also in some way you're having a life that's interesting, full of variety. And it seems that in that paper, I think it was Oishi and Westgate, I yeah. think is the paper that we're referring to. And one of the examples that they give is escape rooms. Yes. That folks that um, are successful at leaving their escape room feel a sense of greater meaning and greater, ha- greater happiness. But folks that when they dial up the challenge of the escape room, the folks that aren't successful but still continue at it report a greater increase in the psychological richness. Sort of that that challenge of an unsolved puzzle and persisting, you know, Angela Duckworth's grit right. aspect to life. Uh, so, so the sweet spot is sort of finding a balance between all of those and, 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 and maybe dialing up some of your meaning if you don't have enough meaning or dialing up some of your pleasure if you don't have enough pleasure or dialing up some interest, curiosity, variety. Right. And I think a similar moral applies in, in other ways as well. Mihaly um, uh, Csikszentmihalyi uh, sadly passed away a few days ago. And he, uh, he was the founder, he wrote the book Flow, became this crazy bestseller. And I read it when I was a, a teenager. It had this enormous influence on me. And, and he argues that these flow states where you get immersed into a puzzle, into something like an athletic uh, uh, performance or musical performance or some sort of great conversation, sits between, in another book he calls, between boredom and anxiety. So if, if it's too easy, you're just bored. If it's too difficult, you're kind of freaking out. And, and at a certain point, it becomes aversive. And we have to find a sort of space in between for, for projects, for travel, for relationships, I think our temptation for a lot of us is to just stick with the boredom. So, you know, rather than engage in something difficult and, and, and challenging, it's a lot easier for me to sit and, you know, watch Netflix and, uh, you know, take, take, just live vicariously. Or the laws, the sort of least effort that it's that in right. some ways we just choose the boredom because it's lesser effort. But yeah, I was wondering how his death impacted you because you talk about him a lot in terms of his personal influence on you you know, in your work? Um, he had a great influence, not just on my work, um, but on my life in a way, because I, I read his book, Flow, which I, I highly recommend. And that book, along with another book I talk about, uh, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, made me rethink what a good life is. So 
one of the things that Csikszentmihalyi talks about is, is work. And he says, you know, people tend to think uh, work is bad. Going to your work is, is bad and pleasant, difficult, and vacations are fun. Nobody ever negotiates for less vacation time. You want to have vacations. But he does these studies, and it turns out that if your work is rewarding enough, you're actually happier at work or more engaged than on vacation, which could be kind of boring. And, and I had always in my own life sometimes got involved in sort of flow activities, like training for a marathon or writing a book. And I always thought, well, this is kind of a weird thing I do. And, I, and this isn't a real, where the real stuff is. This is just stuff I have to do. And then I, I read flow and it was like a, a flip of perspective where I said, maybe this is where life is. And, you know, the hot fudge Sundays and Netflix, that's all great. But, but, that's, but, but that's not the most valuable part of things. So I, I think the field lost just a great mind. And since he wrote the book, Flow, he did a lot of other work um, expanding on looking at across countries and teenagers and so on. And just, you know, great scholar. Yeah, you know, I think that um, our relationship with work has gotten really confused, right? I, if you go back to hunter-gathering, it, it, there was no separation between work and life. It's just... You're, you're engaging in, in, you know, chop wood, carry water of, of living. And, uh, and we've really, in the same way that I think as soon as we put kids into PE class, they start hating movement. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. they, they'll hang from trees, they'll go across the bars, they'll hang from your, you know, shower curtain. But as soon as you start making them do it in a certain way and telling them that this is work, it, it sort of almost takes away that intrinsic motivation. And so flow gives us back, you know, that, that sense of, wait a minute, this is actually, it's, it's enjoyable to have that, to have something that's effortful and a little bit interesting and in that zone of, of growth and uh, engagement. I think that's right. And, and the PE class is a good example because with the PE class, what Jim takes away from you is autonomy. You know, everybody line up, do this, do that. Um, and sometimes for, for physical activities is actually fun to learn something new and to do drills and to practice and everything. But if you, it's different when you choose to do it versus it's what you do from 50 minutes between, you know, chemistry and English. And, um, and, and there is a compartmentalization of it. Religion is another activity that's compartmentalized over history, which is, you know, many cultures uh, and, and ours long ago had no separate notion of religion because it wasn't this separate thing. It was just what you practiced day to day. And now we, now because there are many religions, because some people well, like me don't have a religion, they, it, it's viewed as a separate category and we compartmentalize. Um, and you would think I, so here's where it's this personal opinion. Oh, some of the personal opinion, but here's a personal opinion, which is the way I like to do it. I just blur my work and my life together. I mean, I'm an experimental psychologist. I'm constantly talking about this stuff and talking with friends and thinking of examples and everything. And I like that way of doing things. I know there's other people who prefer to compartmentalization. I know some very productive scholars who work from nine to five, Monday to Friday, really intensely, and the rest of it is just other things. But I like the blurring. I like, I like, I like the, the letting it slip from one end of one part of your life to another. Yeah, one of my co-hosts, Yaal, Sean Braun, talks about the enrichment of how your work can enrich your life and your life can enrich your work, in particular in the arena of parenting, yeah. right? So uh, I think that being a psychologist has deeply enriched my parenting practices and vice versa. And then, you know, doing a podcast enriches my clinical work and 
vice versa. So when we start to, you know, we do like to kind of separate things out. And there is, I think there is some degree of importance to do that. Like when you, I don't want to be on my phone when I'm with my child doing work-related stuff. It's good for me to be with my child and with my child, but that doesn't mean my work isn't going to influence how I engage or the choices that I make in that encounter. I think that's so. right. And and again, I think we're speaking from a point of view of lucky people whose work is rewarding enough. If your work was in some way degrading or unpleasant or boring or meaningless, um, you wouldn't want to do that. You'd want to be done with your work and then you're just done with it and you need to go to parts of your life that matter. But if your work is rewarding, that sort of thing that you're talking about where, where it connects to your parenting and connects to your relationship, then that's actually just a terrific thing that makes your life better. How would you like to see this? I mean, obviously we're talking about it at the individual level, but how would you like to see this uh, sort of a grander scale applied um, to society as a whole? Like how, how can we use what, what we're learning from the sweet spot and the pleasures of suffering to actually maybe make some bigger picture adjustments? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I have no policy suggestions revolving around this. Um, I guess what I, I'd like to do is to some extent change the culture. Um, people think, often think that we're hedonists, that people are hedonists. I think that's, that's, if you ask people, psychologists and sometimes lay people, what do people want? I'll say, ah, people at root just want to have a good time. And, you know, we do difficult things, but that's because we want to have, you have to, you know, you have to, to get a job in order to pay for your good time and you have to do that. And, um, I think um, people are wrong about themselves. I've never met a hedonist. I never met somebody who just cares about pleasure, didn't care about doing the right thing, didn't care about making a difference. So I think I'd like on a broader scale to persuade people to have a sort of more sophisticated and I think um, more generous view of human nature. So altruism in terms of like saying saying that people are generally concerned about others do you believe that there's sort of some evolutionary benefit to that so my my day job my research most of my research is in moral psychology like in the development of moral psychology looking at empathy and compassion and moral judgments and i think the answer to your question is complicated i think we've evolved some degree of what um what used to call fellow feeling compassion concern for others we've evolved a sense of fairness and justice we've evolved um punitive appetites towards people who do bad things. Um, and, and this is sort of part of an innate morality. And so I think to some extent, yeah, we start off as moral creatures. But I also think that our built-in morality is very limited. And one thing, uh, and this connects to what we talked about before regarding empathy, is it's very local. So we're wired up to care for people around us. But I think the idea that people in faraway lands have lives that value that have value just as much as our children and our friends is a very difficult and very modern idea, a modern moral insight. So we have a built-in morality, but it's, it's limited. And um, one of the great things about culture and, and progress, human progress, is we've gotten better at morality. We now have more impartial moral systems. We now care more about people who are different from us. But um, but yeah, I do think we have an innate evolved core, and some of the research I've been involved with babies and young children look at look at how that works. You said you don't feel like you have much policy recommendations, but it, it seems that 
if we as a culture, and I mean in particular the U.S., can get more comfortable with pain and see that we have a choice to enter into pain, there's actually benefits to choosing pain, it would facilitate us to maybe enter into difficult conversations and spaces in um, in a way that we can have more compassion. So for example, if you can, uh, I think like a vegetarian vegan movement, a lot of their movement is like to watch <laughs> you know, videos of like slaughtering of animals, and then it kind of motivates you to, you know, uh, make a change in terms of that. But if we can do that in the, you know, arena of racism, or we can do that in the arena of um, hunger, then we may be more willing, not in, not in like overcome by empathy, but maybe more willing to uh, act towards towards compassion. There's someone named Paul Gilbert, who's the founder of Compassionate Mind Foundation, and he started this type of therapy called compassion-focused therapy. And one of the things that you do in this approach with compassion-focused therapy is you start with an assessment of fears around compassion and fears of receiving compassion, but also fears of giving compassion. And it's really interesting to see, like, what are people afraid of? And they're often afraid of, if I am compassionate towards another person, it may... um sort of let them off the hook in some way, or they won't be responsible for themselves, they won't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But it does seem that if we are enter into a little bit more of a compassionate space where we can choose pain, it may shift some of our policy around um, helping others. I think that's fascinating. I never thought of it that way. But I think that that's, that that's right. A, A lot of moral progress at both the society level and individual level. It involves voluntarily exposing yourself to uncomfortable things. It involves, um, you know, a vegetarian would say, and I'm not a vegetarian, but a vegetarian would say, I'd be a better person if I forced myself to consider what happens as a result of factory farming and treatment of animals. Um, People of every political perspective, I think, would benefit from a close and careful look at, you know, at the other side. And what people on the other side say. Uh, And often we choose the very comfortable route of sort of being very pleased of our own prejudices and our own uh, moral perspective. And, you know, following our friends on Twitter and and making fun of the people we disagree with. But um, I think we're better people and live better lives if we force ourselves to do some uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. I think one of the best gifts for me during... uh the pandemic was having some clients that had a completely different political view than me. And it really, really helped uh, my understanding of where they were coming from. And that at at its root, there was really sort of the same core things of like, I care about my family. I want people to be safe. I, you know, and, and when I was able to see that common humanity, it helped me be able to take their perspective and then be able to work with them more effectively. I'd have conversations with them that if it were a friend, I would just probably shut down and argue against, but because it's my client, I'm deeply listening for what's underneath it. Yeah. I think, I, I think that that's right. I mean, I'm a university professor uh, at Yale University, Toronto. So, I, so I'm in exactly, I have exactly the politics you'd expect I would have. And, and everybody I know just about, except for some family members, has exactly the politics that you'd expect us to have. But there's a danger to this where we could be very quick to demonize and belittle people who are different from us. So it's not just that, well, 
you know, voting for Trump, I would think would be a mistake. I think it's, 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 you know, it, it's, uh, not taking vaccines is a mistake, but one shouldn't jump so quickly to say that the people are monsters or idiots. And I think there's just a reflex, this very easy reflex to say, well, my group is so much in the right without taking the steps of figuring out why did people vote for Trump? Why don't want people want to take vaccines? Um, I think there's an, it's, it's uncomfortable to say that, you know, if you're, if you're a committed anti-racist, you might say, you know, so, so what's going on people who, who are really worried about diversity programs and think they're unfair? Maybe we maybe we feel we will be contaminated if we, uh, if we dwell too much on opposite perspectives. I think maybe there's contamination. Maybe there's just exposing that you don't know everything. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, if I stay in there, you know, I kind of have that feeling with you, Paul Bloom. I'm like, oh, I don't know a whole lot that you know a lot about. And it's uncomfortable to stay in spaces with people that know a lot about things. And so the, I almost feel like the more politically opinionated you become, the more you know. It's almost the, you know, sort of the research around people that the more the the more they watch the news, the more, you know, polar they become, right? And so staying in places where you don't know, um, maybe that we're maybe a little bit more ambivalent about, around some stuff than we than we think. We may agree yeah. around some things. That's uncomfortable. It's like uncomfortable. how do you agree with someone that you're opponent to? But I think it's a yeah. it's an important uh discomfort. I, I made a case for, for chosen suffering uh, as a way to sort of improve your life and everything. But you're, you're raising another dimension, which I don't talk about enough in my book, which is chosen suffering as a moral position, as a way to become a better person, as a way to you know, make the world a better place. And I think that's important too. Absolutely. I think that's important. I think in honor of um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, that we should say his name, and you can maybe even pronounce his name. We read it a lot, but we should pronounce his name. But also thinking about, you know, ways in which we can engage in flow in our life. And, and I'd love for you to just maybe give some suggestions around how we could engage in, in more flow. So if you read uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, and his other books, uh, it's full of stories of people who have flow in their lives. These athletes who spend hours and hours and these musicians and performers and scholars, scientists, you know, one quick sign is if, if several hours have gone by and you forgot to eat and like lost track of time, then you're probably in a flow state. And when I read this first, I felt envy, you know, I felt, man, what lives. And, and I, I don't have that sort of life. I, I, I don't maintain flow as much. Um, there's another book now, Cal Newport talks about deep work, which kind of captures the same theme. And so I don't have any, you know, if, if, if I knew the trick of it, I would do it myself. But, um, but, but what, what Csikszentmihalyi says um, is that entering the state of flow is the difficult part. Entering is, is taking the steps to find, push yourself through the effort required to get into something. You know, going to the gym, um, you know, trying to learn a second language or so on. Those are, that's the difficult part. And once you're there, you could kind of get a habit of doing it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very separate concern and focus on my book, but I'm kind of really into habits and, uh, and I'm working on, on, I, I do writing, work on another book and every, every morning I try to work an hour on it and I try to get into a state of flow and I just purposefully try to kind of get really into it until I lose myself. And often I don't cause I have email and Twitter and, and, you know, so they distract me and I let them distract me. But when I don't, my life is the best when I, you know, I'm, I'm the most pleased with myself and most satisfied when I, when I 
put the extra en energy to block out other distractions and enter a flow state. So um, I, I should, you know, I, I shouldn't be telling people to buy my book, but, but if you had to just buy one book, buy flow. Certainly, I think in terms of work habits, one way to, to start to identify that for yourself is just be a sort of a highlighter to that, that feeling state and what is it that brings you that. And part of that, I also think going back to children and what I work on a lot with my children is not rescuing them from boredom states, letting them stay in boredom long enough so that then they become creative and, and not putting parameters around our creativity or our children's creativity, letting it just sort of go and you and see where it takes you. So that's certainly a lot of your work is, is, you know, sort of this creative pursuit of looking at things in different ways. I think that's right. I'm far from the first to say this, but we have the terrible curse of now living in a world where it's kind of hard to be bored because, you know, I have my, I have my phone right next to me, um, my computer and kids can immediately find endless distractions and games and videos and social contact. Um, and you miss the benefit. And in fact, one of the authors of the paper you uh, spoke about is Aaron Westgate, who's written very eloquently about boredom. And the idea is boredom's a wonderful motivator. You get bored, you go somewhere with it. And that's such an important, important skill to have. The interesting thing that you know, sort of Anne, um, the, the dopamine nation and Lembeck's work, I don't know if you've read that or heard her speak. She's great. But what, what she also talks about is that if we're constantly in this pursuit, we're going to pursue a pleasure, our dopamine is going to drop off and we're just going to feel more dissatisfied. So if we can stay in this, the place of dissatisfaction a little bit longer, then maybe we could have the dopamine hit of pleasure. I mean, that, that sort of moment when you break through the boredom and, and you get into the state of flow is incredibly satisfying. I think so. that's true. I think that's true. I at an intellectual level, even at the most basic level. Um, if you eat whenever you're the slightest bit hungry, hey, you know, you'll always be kind of satisfied, but, but maybe going for a while without eating and then having a nice meal, there's a pleasure to that. There's a pleasure to, to, um, to the enacting of willpower and holding off on things. And it's a pleasure that's harder and harder to find in our modern world. We have to sort of establish it ourselves because often things come easy to us. Well, thank you, thank Dr. You. Bloom. I appreciate having you on the show. And um, folks that want to check out your books, you have many of them. The Sweet Spot is one of them. We'll link to everything in our show notes. And I I guess the last thing I want to say is you're a fan of podcasts. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Oh, um, oh my God. Uh, my friends are going to be so angry at me because I'm going to exclude some of them. But uh, I won't mention, I have some famous friends who do this, but uh, but Very Bad Wizards is a wonderful podcast um, of a psychologist and a philosopher. It's incredibly profane, very funny. Um, and then I would also talk for psychology, uh, two psychologists, four beers, um, which is uh, where they talk about issues in the field and, and social issues and so on. And those are two I'd recommend right from the get-go. Great. Thank you. Thank I'm you. always looking for anyone to listen to. Okay. Take care. That was great. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. 
If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.